0: Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Multicultural Middle Ages podcast. My name is Reed O'Mara, and I am a PhD student in art history at Case Western Reserve University. Today, I am joined by Drs. Allison Monroe and Elena Mullins Bailey, two early music specialists who just so happen to also be graduates of Case Western. Thank you both so much for joining me today to talk about medieval music.
1: Absolutely. We're happy to be here.
0: Yeah, I can't wait to hear about it. And I can't speak for our listeners, but like many medievalists I know, I am absolutely enthralled by the music of the Middle Ages and by the people who study and continue to perform it. I cannot wait to dive into the subject today, but before I get ahead of myself, perhaps you both could introduce yourselves to our listeners. Allison, would you start us off?
1: Sure. Um, I'm Alison Monroe, as you said. Um, I was originally a violinist um, who became interested in medieval music because my parents listened to some, because they got tickets to a free concert when they were grad students. And they were excited because it was free. <laughs> <laughs> Not because it was medieval music. They were just like, it's free date night. Great. <laughs> um yeah and they really loved it it was a group called the waverly consort and so they started just like getting albums out of the library and i grew up listening to a certain amount of medieval and renaissance music um and i always loved it but it always seemed very distant from my actual musical life because i played the violin and i played like suzuki violin and yeah. like, <laughs> like that's its whole own world um And it took a long time for me to be able to actually get to the medieval music. I was always kind of trying to figure out how to get there, but I didn't know anyone that did it. I didn't know how to get in touch with anyone who did it. I didn't have the right instruments. I wasn't a singer. So like it just I didn't know how to get there. Uh, Yeah. And eventually I was able to really the, the real place that I got to explore medieval music was at Case. I had like a few little experiences along the way. I bought an instrument along the way and then, like, sat in my room by myself. Um, but I wasn't really until I came to Case Western where I got to study it. And now I have a doctorate. I teach at Case Western. I run a group with Elena and I am a freelance musician and travel and perform not just medieval music but also later repertoires.
2: Excellent. And Elena? Uh, yeah, I did not grow up listening to medieval music at all. My parents started listening because I started doing it. Um, There was a lot of classical music growing up and, um, you know, maybe, maybe some renaissance polyphony in there. Uh, I sang, I I sang some renaissance music, uh, in choirs growing up, but that's as close as I got to medieval repertoires (laughs) until really Case Western, um, like Allison. Um, And there was a project that um, we did early on in my graduate work there, which was Iberian music. And this amazing VL player, Shira Kamen, was brought in to do a residency with us. And the whole, like, everybody who was studying and got to work with Shira basically fell in love with medieval music, <laughs> yeah, and then a few of them, uh, well, David McCormick, who's now the uh, executive director of Early Music America, uh, ended up getting buying a VL and deciding he wanted to put on a concert of medieval music, so he got um, some friends, some from the program together, and we ended up putting a group together that is doing fantastic work to this day, Alchemy, um, based in New York. And then um, Allison and Karin Weston, our third um, founding member of Trabar, they started putting a group together and ended up bringing me on board. And so now it's like, (laughs) all that I do is medieval music. And I started teaching um, at Case. I have a Renaissance choir at Case, but I also teach. um, I've taught a couple times the medieval Uh, seminar and um, the Medieval and Renaissance Notation Seminar. Yeah. Yeah, I first also encountered Medieval Music at Case
0: with you. Yeah. one of those (laughs) classes. So yeah, yeah, it's great to be here. Thank you both so much for uh, joining me today for this. I think uh, before we dive too much into the nitty gritty of, you know, what are these instruments you're mentioning? What are, what is medieval music exactly? We could talk a little bit um, on some background about, you know, what is musicology? What is historical performance practice? And what do we even mean when we say medieval music? Um, perhaps one of you wants to start with that.
1: <laughs> sure, I can start. It's a small um, question. Yeah. yeah, a really small question. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess I would start by saying that uh, as primarily a performer, uh, both of us came from a performing world, you took music history classes, but the whole sort of world of musicology was this kind of mysterious, at least to me anyway, was this kind of mysterious thing that like only grad students really did. Mm. We just took a history class and read a textbook and listened to some old recordings that weren't always the most thrilling performances (laughs) and didn't seem that alive. Um, And depending on, like, who you studied with, I don't know, it it could just seem very dry and academic and very, like, apart from the actual sound of the music. Um, Yeah, so it wasn't until later that I discovered that once you start getting into the repertoire and wanting to perform this repertoire – you kind of have to become a musicologist, especially for medieval. Um, so, a musicologist is someone who studies the history of music, um, but not necessarily history. Or so just many different me, directions, that's go true. In, that's true. You know? It used to be much more the history of music, and now it's also like the culture of music, yeah, and society, and music, and <laughs> the music. body, and the music, and yeah. identity, and music, and many other things much like art history, yes, no, yes. No. much no. like <laughs> most of academia, yeah. Um, yeah. So, in order to really get into this repertoire, it's not like you can go to a conservatory and study with someone who's just going to be like. This is the way my teacher taught me and that's the way their teacher taught them and here's the fingerings and here's the bowings and here's how to play it because that's the way that i was told to play it
2: which it's, is a lot of like when we talk about the classical music world that's kind of how it operates
1: yes okay. yeah you um, go to your lesson and your teacher says take a breath here or put your comma here or use this fingering this is the fingering that my teacher did or whatever um,
2: I mean, I, you know, and they'll also teach you principles, and, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. and it's, it goes a little bit deeper yeah. than that, I would say, but yeah. um, but there is a lot of just carrying on a tradition.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and because we don't have a living tradition for medieval music, it requires one to do some work on one's own to delve in, into, like, a lot of elements, like Elaine was talking about, notation. In order to even figure out what the notes are you have to study some notation and even then it's not always (laughs) clear
2: (laughs) and so when we talk about historical performance practice um what we're trying to look at is um we're just trying to take you know the the evidence that we have which is going to be some scores it's going to be iconography of um singers and instrumentalists and the instruments they're playing um and any sort of written works, whether they're treatises about how to play the instrument or how to sing this rep, um, all sorts of places we can go to try to reconstruct the music.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so a lot of what we do is actually putting together from many sources, no one place has the full picture. Right. Um, Yeah, so like, you know, when you look at a, a picture of music being made, an art historian you could weigh into this much more strongly (laughs) than we could it doesn't necessarily tell you like that's exactly how the music was made like there's a lot other things going on there like why was the picture made but you can look at that alongside maybe a treatise from the same time period alongside maybe a contemporary poem or romance that describes a musical performance alongside say any sort of records, which we don't have for a lot of the medieval, but from some places we have records of, like, this many people were paid to, to play for this event. And, and even beyond
2: that, you can go into, like, you know, broader cultural things. Like, yeah. I feel like we've tried to push it further by getting more acquainted with the literature, not just yeah. literature describing music making, but literature yes. in general. Yeah. Um, just knowing more about the history. Mm-hmm. Knowing about the food that they ate, definitely, yeah, yeah, environment they were in,
0: yeah, yeah, it gets very expansive. It
2: can, yeah, know. yes, yeah, but
0: yes. It, it is interesting. You can start with something like you know a medieval manuscript and just trying to cipher the notes, and it just builds out from there. It mm-hmm. sounds like. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So when we were talking about medieval music, could you speak a little bit about like what does that look or I guess sound like, not look like. That's the largest story coming out, but <laughs> <laughs> what does that sound like? Like what genres do we get with uh a medieval lot. music? There's
1: actually so much variety. And it's I mean, um, it's unsurprising,
2: it's how many centuries of music. Right. The medieval medieval Even music, like the earliest stuff is probably not not the
1: notated stuff, yeah. Ninth century. You're sort of
2: inferring a lot when you go pre ninth century. Yes. Um, Yeah. And then all the way through basically the at Um, least the 14th.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's. I mean, that's even like hard to define like what is the medieval. (laughs) Oh. I have no idea. Yeah. Exactly. (laughs) And and for music, it doesn't necessarily 100% line up with other fields either. Right. Um, And they're sort of like medieval trends into the mid-15th or even late 15th century in some places, even arguably into the 16th century in some mm. places. So yeah, it's hard to know that. One, one sort of
2: um, marker that I use that is, again, it's just like, it's a way oversimplification mm-hmm. is that when you get from, when you go from the medieval to the Renaissance, mm-hmm. you start instead of in the renaissance they were really into consort music so you have um you know a whole family of recorders of different size that get mm-hmm. to play together mm-hmm. or vials of different size that are playing together mm-hmm. um or just a bunch of voices <laughs> in you know, like six six part vocal music mm-hmm. and before that they seemed more interested in the broken consort or Variety, mixing mixing different yeah. and things but that yeah. is
1: yeah, that's <laughs> like, yeah. That, yeah, you, yeah yeah problematic problematic yeah 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 and there are other ways of categorizing too but yeah yeah so I mean there's tons of repertoire and you start with the earliest things and even continuing actually much later than you might think there's mon- monophonic music which right. is music for one voice or at least that's all we have notated and we don't know like were people adding other things, and sometimes um, we do yeah. know. There's sometimes we have written accounts of like, and here's how you would add a second voice to that. But we don't always know when, in what contexts, and necessarily we don't we don't necessarily know how many people, how many people would be adding, how many people would be on the main part. Um,
2: and it's just, amazing how rich of a texture you can get when you've got a group of different singers and instruments. All doing a melody, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they might be, you know, some of them might be adding some drones, mm-hmm. but maybe not. Maybe they're just some, you know, because you're hearing it in different timbres, mm-hmm. um, and some are adding some extra notes in
1: there, mm-hmm. or, you know, it's some it could be really rich. Can simplify, yeah. There's so many ways to, there's a word for that, what's called heterophony, which means everyone <laughs> on one line but not doing exactly the same thing, okay, yeah. It's a good word. Yeah. Heterophony. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's my word
0: for the day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
1: So then we go from like monophony, but the two overlap. So it's not like there was music for one person and then there was music for many people. The two were happening at the same time. They were yeah. uh simultaneous practices. But increasingly we have music written for two or more voices and written out by composers like what to sing. It's not so much of a like you get to make up your own part. It becomes increasingly, like, saying this. (laughs) Okay.
2: And when 20th century historians were looking back, or 19th century historians were looking back, I mean, it was very tempting for them to say, like, well, we started with one voice, and then we ended up with two voices. Right, yes. That that would be simpler. (laughs) Here's our first three-voice piece. Isn't this exciting? And And they would use
1: that to, like, date things and to also talk about, like, this is better music because there's more voices versus this is worse music because there's less voice. Like it starts becoming a judgment call and actually Mm -hmm. the more we study it the more we realize like no actually people sang solo things for hundreds of years uh without doing and And they're still still doing doing it it. it's a crazy thing yeah yeah like i was i was shocked to find out that like in the 19th century ballad singers and even into the 20th century they would just sing stand up and sing an entire like you know 15 or 20 long verse uh, piece mm-hmm. by themselves. No accompaniment. Yeah. Yeah. And that's just like and totally normal. being
2: a storyteller. Yeah. You
1: know? Yeah. 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 Super compelling. Yeah. And speaking
0: of storytelling and accompaniments, that makes me think about, you know, music that isn't strictly a part of the church, mm-hmm. but music that is for the laity. Could mm-hmm. we talk a little bit about that? And maybe that's where we get some instruments?
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so we know the instruments were around Before they were being used in church services, instrument music, instrumental music, was not written down Mm -hmm. very often for a really long time until much after vocal music gets written down. The reason
2: they're writing down vocal music, period, um, because they... They had no need to write it down because they were so accustomed to learning by ear. Mm-hmm. Everybody that was oh. just the way people communicated. Yeah. Um, and so you first start needing to write down music because you are in the church and you're trying to maintain a tradition yeah. and you're trying to actually standardize it across um, you know, the whole geographic area. Yeah. This is the Carolingian. Right, this empire, would make sense. You know, <laughs> right, yeah. yeah. Um, and, and the church continues to want to, you know, preserve the melodies that are, you know, supposed to be the, the correct melodies. Mm-hmm. And so that's a big driver in mm-hmm. this. Um, and, like, why would you write down
1: in, instrumental right. music? Right. And just even in their understanding of music, like in a Boethian understanding of music, instrumental music, musica instrumentalis, is at the very bottom so oh. <laughs> yeah there's like the music of the spheres which is like the ultimate music and then there's the music of people humana, humana there you go yeah. <laughs> of people humans and then musica instrumentalis is the bottom which is the
2: actual sounding music that we hear yes but
1: and then and
2: then there's the, the yeah distinction between vocal music which carries text and you know and then and
1: which more closely resembles the music of the spheres and then i see stuff
2: that you're like you're you know your juggler slash strings, your, yeah, fiddler place, yeah. which is... Yeah, the yeah. least valuable. So, all that to say... <laughs> which I'm sure is not the way a lot of people felt about it. No, not right. the way it was no. talked about in right. certain
1: circles. The people who wrote the books got to say that. Right. So, um, yeah, so instrumental music uh, was around, but we don't have a record of it for quite a while. Some of the earliest we have is 13th century uh, French and um, yeah so the instruments most of them uh, especially all the bowed stringed instruments seem to have come actually from arabic uh, culture um, and also some of the plucked instruments like the lute which is related to the oud and they came up via we think they came up via um, like southern france and uh, the iberian peninsula where there were a lot of um, african and arabic uh interplay through that whole region um and sharing of music sharing of poetic forms you can actually see that like in music like the contigas uh that it's not just the instruments of the musicians but actually like the poetic forms get brought up as well and then start influencing the music itself
0: that's um, fascinating because i imagine that's happening a- across different languages these yeah, poetic forms yes yeah wow
1: yeah so they were like they Andalusian repertoire has a poetic form that's really similar to a poetic form in the cantigas, which would have been in an old form of um, well, it's Galician Portuguese. It's the, it's yeah, wow, an old Portuguese. <laughs> it sounds kind of like Portuguese slash Spanish, um, yeah. So, and then you get, and you get more instrumental music later as, um, as manuscripts start being compiled, not just for church use, but also for like important patrons and people that are wealthy enough to have a book of music written down. Um, and of course, so all along, there always was instrumental music. It just, you don't know what they played for yeah. a long
2: time. And of course, there was also secular music and all along.
1: love yeah. songs. <laughs> all, right.
2: but they also start getting written down. There's always been love songs. <laughs> There's always been yes. love songs. <laughs> <laughs> yes. We start in Europe, we start seeing them written down Around the 13th century, yeah, some late 12th century, 12th century manuscripts century, yeah. as well, and that may also—I—I I haven't done the latest reading on where did the troubadour tradition come from? Yeah, the courtly love tradition. Yeah. You were
1: just—yeah, just I was books? just talking about this book that. Um, this guy was tracing, it's not that recent, It's like 10 years ago, but I, still haven't, I still, haven't actually <laughs> used. still haven't actually read it. I've just browsed it multiple times. Anyway, I need to sit down and read it. It's by John Haynes. I think it's like medieval song and romance languages or something. Uh, he's sort of looking at the pre-troubadour tradition and pulling out, there's like a few little tidbits of surviving examples And so he pulls those out, but he also cites all these, um, like, moments in treatises and various things that talk about song in the vernacular languages um, that we don't have any record of what it sounded like or the text or anything. But, like, he talks about, like, laments and lullabies and that these were both, like, associated with women. And that's also partially probably why they didn't get written down.
2: Is there any courtly love?
1: Uh, yeah. Is, okay. Yeah.
2: Yeah. That's the other. That's the sort of dominating theme in most secular music um, that uh, the troubadours really focus on, mm-hmm. um, and that's again 12th century. The first manuscripts for that are late 12th, 13th century, southern France. Um, again, like coming up with the instruments, probably. <laughs> yeah. And, the themes of courtly love are definitely um, echoing Arabic mm-hmm. poetry, love poetry, yeah. um, love poetry, mm-hmm. and the yeah the, the the tropes of courtly love are you've got <laughs> your you've got your man who is in some he's in this sort of relationship with a woman who is probably not his wife who. He is maybe adoring from a distance, or maybe not adoring from a distance, and she's (laughs) elevated, she's put on a pedestal, um, and there's all this sort of, it's just, there's all this built-up tension because they're prevented from being together, probably because she's married to somebody else. Yeah. Um, And this is the motivation for him to sing, um, to create poetry, um, his feelings for her, and he ends up often sort of kind of being jerky <laughs> to her because, like, she's, she's been Usually. this blind, you know, yeah, but, like she can't actually, she's not in a position to be able to return his love, and so he's like, Why are you so frigid and cool yeah. to me? And, yeah, you know,
1: because if she did return his love, then it would be like, Well, you're a woman of ill repute, like, right. I can't yeah. be seen with you, <laughs> you yeah. cannot win, yeah. No. yeah, no, yeah,
2: and those themes just go
1: straight through yeah you know into the renaissance yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. and maybe and beyond, beyond. Yeah. yes yeah. yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. yeah and it's cool because they crop up in um sacred music as well and the lady turns into mary the virgin mother right yeah and so you have all this repertoire that like, if you didn't see the word Mary in there, it would look exactly like courtly love poetry because. Maybe not exactly.
2: There are a lot of, there's, there's certain words like mercy. Yeah. Is used begging yeah. mercy of yeah. the courtly lady, begging mercy of Mary to intercede. And the
1: description of her is like high and lofty yes. and yeah. someone who can like sort of help me in some sort of way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah.
0: You get the similar thing in art where, you know, these things are secular and sacred. Of course, Mm -hmm. we we think about them as two separate boxes, but then you get artwork that it's, you know, very clearly about uh the loss of one's virtue you know i'm thinking about the capturing of a unicorn mm. but then you can also know it's an allegory for the virgin mary mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah You're getting the same thing across art and yeah, music totally, it sounds yeah, like
1: yeah. <laughs> we're just talking in a class i'm teaching right now about this italian uh 15th century Fienza codex it's called and it's for an organ probably and the most recent research is arguing that uh, it's a collection that was used in church services, despite the fact that about half of the repertoire, maybe even more than half the repertoire, is secular love songs <laughs> from the time period, and that the organist would have been playing this in the service, and it I wasn't.
2: Mean, again, if you look at sacred music all through time, yes, if you look at what's like. Being produced today for use in churches, yeah, it sounds a whole lot like yeah, love songs, like yeah.
1: kind of yeah. love songs, yeah. yeah. And yeah. one of the one of the theories about it is that um, a lot of the secular songs could they could reset poetry that was sacred to secular music, which is called contrafacta. So you write new text that is like to Mary or to Jesus or to your saint or whoever. And then you set it to a tune that's already been written. And so for the lay audience in this service, they might be thinking about the secular song, but they might also have heard it with like a Gloria text or like a a Marian text or something. Um, So they might have both those connotations at the same time when they hear this piece.
0: That's really cool. I mean... You think about what that does to like your memory and like how you think about this music. Yeah. It's it's really great. I think this sets us up with a really good background for moving forward and thinking about medieval music and how it can be performed. So I'd love to turn the conversation to talking about your band, (laughs) TROBAR, which I've had the pleasure of listening to many times (laughs) because you guys are often doing concerts here in Cleveland. But I'd love to hear about how that started and and what exactly it is you do. Uh,
1: I can talk about how it started. So um, we started without Elena, actually. Um, sad. I know. Although I call myself a co
2: founder, but
1: <laughs> well, we were at our first real concert because the previous quote unquote concert was only about 20 minutes of music. After a week of rehearsal, all we had was about 20 minutes of hey, music. you know. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so, um, it was started by Karin Weston and I. We were studying at Case Western at the same time as Elena. Karin and I went on this road trip out to Vancouver and went to this two week long medieval um, workshop with Sequencia, who if you have listened to any medieval music, you would probably come across them, they're amazing. And they've put out a bunch of recordings that are awesome. So we went, studied with them, studied specifically Troubadour song um, and it was a great course. And we just, like, got really invested in that two weeks. Um, We learned, like, I learned a lot of things by ear. It was just, like, it was a really formative two weeks. And afterwards, we were like, okay, we've got to do this. Let's just start doing it together because we don't know anybody else that necessarily, (laughs) like, wants to get into this right this second. Um, So our first project was a Troubadour project. And that's when we came up with the name trobar, which means to find or to seek. But it's the word that they eventually started using to mean like to create, because the idea was that you are finding words and melodies that are already out there. And so creating isn't so much about like your own genius or anything. It's about like putting together, collating all these things that are out there in the world. Um, which we thought was a really beautiful idea. Yeah, it's, it's perfect for what it is you do. Exactly, <laughs> hence you know? the name. Um, yeah, we like trobarring. That's what we do, is trobar. Um, yeah, and we realized very quickly that the two of us could not sustain an entire concert by ourselves. <laughs> right. And that we both have like really similar tendencies to just like delve really, really, really deep. And never move forward. <laughs> so we were like, I don't know if that's what, I don't think you realized that. I think that's not why you asked
2: me to join. Maybe not. No, I think you asked me to join because you were like, it would be much easier to do a concert with, with three, three people. people. Just because, especially when one was basically just a vocalist. Right. And you were primarily playing VL. Yes. I was um, only,
1: yeah, at that point.
2: Yeah. Um, and so getting a third person in there is going to make (laughs) really open up you know a lot of possibilities yes and then what we discovered eventually was that yes uh karen and allison like to go deep and i had already been performing with alchemy for a couple of years at this point and i was beginning to get used to like churning out material for concerts not churning we the process the alchemy process is also like trying. It's there's, there's a lot of trying. We we try out every possible combination of instruments which every time we get together there's six of us now and every time we get together there's a million new instruments that we have to try out. So it's it's a, <laughs> yeah. very, it's a very different process but like we had figured out how to get from point A to point B yeah in time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and to put out like a show. Yeah. And so um, that I think I I was able to contribute that yeah. In addition to my voice. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But Elena, having studied at Case and us having studied at Case, like we had a lot of similar background, a lot of similar ways of thinking about things that like meshed very easily. Yeah. Um, yeah. And a lot of like values as to what we wanted to do were in common. So it worked out. Yeah.
0: No, yeah. It, I mean, it's, I can tell you it's worked out. It's, <laughs> it's fantastic. <laughs> What type of music does Trubart perform? I mean, I know. I think <laughs> But our <laughs> listeners don't know.
1: <laughs> well, our very first program was Troubadour. But then once we brought in Elena, we were like, oh, we can do polyphony. <laughs> Two right. and three parts. <laughs> um, and in fact, actually, in that first concert we did with you, we even did at least one four-part piece, and I tried to sing and play at the same time, yep. which just about blew up my mind. But anyway... <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. So we do we do a mix of um, everything from I think Troubadour. No, I guess Hildegard von Bingen is probably the earliest repertoire we yeah. do. Uh, so that's 12th century. And we've actually done some pretty late repertoire and we have a project coming up this spring that is 16th century, which was oh. like, oh, what are you doing there? Don't you know the meaning <laughs> the, of medieval? The um, long Middle Ages. Yeah, yeah. yeah <laughs> right. exactly. Well, yeah, so it's English music. And the English were always a little behind the tab. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And they had like what arguably was the last minstrel tradition um, in the sort of medieval sense of mis- minstrels. Um that extended like all the way through the reign of Henry VIII. Okay. And the repertoire there—it's like, in some ways, it's Renaissance, but in some ways, it has it has funny characteristics that make it sort of backwards looking. Um, Basically, so. if
2: you have the right forces for medieval music, you can continue to do some later music yeah. that sort of works in a similar way. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Just because it's from a later time. Yeah. You know? whatever yeah Yeah.
0: the flavors still in the flavor yeah yeah yeah
1: Yeah. and the one thing we haven't done in terms of like notated uh european music we've never done a german program
2: but actually Uh, i believe
1: we're going to be doing one next season (laughs) next season with uh that will be a collaboration project with another group so Which will be great because we don't know very much. about.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm looking forward to that. It'll be great Well, this makes me this does make me think though. I mean it sounds like in your um, Study and performance of medieval music. However, we're defining medieval Mm -hmm. You're able it's quite flexible. You're able Mm. to jump from Iberia to England to France. Maybe Germany It sounds like it's Italy Um, so I guess you know, is
2: it really just a flexible tradition where you really can, you know, just sort of go into all these different geographic points? It takes a lot of work, and at some point we realized that it would be best if we stuck with a particular place and maybe even a particular time, because or at of least the, a window <laughs> because of the text, yeah, pronunciation, yeah, right. It's very hard to. We try to do historical diction. Mm-hmm. Um, because it does sort of... It, like, enhances the flavor of the music. It's, mm-hmm. it's the diction that the people originally doing this music would have done it with. And yeah. so it just it just changes the... Your pronunciation changes the whole character of a piece.
1: Yeah. Um, it and, even changes, like, the actual sound, like, right. the vocal sound. Yeah. Because of where you put it in your mouth, it, it changes. Right. Yeah. So, and it's
2: a lot of work to get your brain going in a particular direction with diction
1: so yeah we uh, now we try to keep things a little more localized um, in terms of place and also sometimes time
2: we also I think we find it interesting just to do a deep dive um, and then try to tell a story within that yeah particular time and place yeah
1: yeah because the music a lot of it is it's not like programming uh, like modern music or even like, like classical music. If you do like a classical quartet concert, you choose four quartets, you do two, you have an intermission, you do two. <laughs> yeah. You just program the whole concert. Right. <laughs> and this is not like that and you have pieces that are everything from like 30 seconds of music to like maybe eight minutes of music. Like how do you make that some sort of modern concert length? Because you know we have like expectations of what a concert is that are not the same expectations that people had in the medieval period. First of all, there wasn't such thing as a concert. And- <laughs> Well, and, there you go. <laughs> so that's a really different expectation. And second, when you heard music, like it, the contexts were completely different. Um, but we have to kind of work within the context that we have now, which is that people want to show up for an hour and a half max of music they expect to be entertained at all times <laughs> <laughs> They expected to like keep their interest they need like moments of repose and moments of like excitement they don't so, get to like eat and drink and have conversations at the same time unfortunately play dice
2: games which would all be historical fountain. right <laughs> yes
1: that would all be historical and sadly that does not although we we do try to move in that direction. But we do serve wine and sometimes during our <laughs> We find it really helps the vibe of the room. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> so in addition to you know creating concerts that are more modeled on what our modern conception of a concert is, you also present music that when you you know sing it or perform it, it has the are of being complete but a lot of the music is discovered in fragmentary forms so are you filling in gaps are you do you sometimes like leave space for us to like recognize mm. that something isn't complete I'm just curious mm-hmm.
2: about how you're crafting the actual you know songs <laughs> yeah I think everything we've ever performed came from originally a manuscript where It it wasn't like a a fragment of a piece. Like, part of it was destroyed. Um, But the amount of information they give you is very minimal. Mm -hmm. Right. So (laughs) maybe you're getting the notes and the words and the rhythms. Maybe Mm -hmm. you're not getting the rhythms. Mm -hmm. But if you are, that's basically all you're getting. And turning that into a piece of music is that's you know that the, requires the
1: filling gaps filling yeah. in lots of gaps yeah. yeah 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 and then that's when you do all the research about trying to figure out what were what were their expectations or not just expectations but like priorities like what did they what did they think was important about this what are we trying to emphasize here and what did they have at their fingertips and do we know what they might have used or do we have ideas of what they could?
0: How high or used?
1: low should this actually be?
2: Like, yeah. This is not just because it says C, like play a C here, does yeah. not mean it's the C when you plunk on a piano. <laughs> right. <know>? Yeah. <laughs> um, it yeah. could be, you know, for a higher voice or a lower voice. It could be yeah. for any number of instruments at different pitch levels. Yeah, That's one thing. It's going to
1: really change your experience of the piece. Yeah. Yeah. And there are just a lot of... I mean, as Elena has taught in her class, notation of any period only tells you certain information. And so, like, even if you look at a modern score, it doesn't necessarily tell you every bit about what you're about to hear. It doesn't tell you, like in our modern system, uh, it doesn't necessarily tell you how to get from one note to another or how, whether to vibrate on a note or not to vibrate. Or There's a lot of things right. that are not included in the notation. Um, if this all is interesting
2: to you, I can recommend a book that I had to look the title up because <laughs> I, I thought it might be useful to you guys. Uh, Capturing Music by Thomas Forrest Kelly. And he, um, he, he talks about the fact that the earliest um, musical notation that we have was not actually interested in um, communicating notes and rhythms, yeah. which are the two things that we think are essential to music yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, It was more gestural. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there would be swoops, you know, a swoop going up and different kind of swoop going up that mm-hmm. was more angular that mm-hmm. told you something about articulation or mm-hmm. weight or, you know, all these other things that are really very difficult to capture in the, the note heads you know, we think that we have the super sophisticated notation system mm-hmm. um, because we can notate all sorts of rhythms. It's very sophisticated rhythmically. Mm-hmm. But um, I remember a project in undergrad where I think it was maybe in a music theory class where they they played. Um, I, it might have been like a. It was probably Ella Fitzgerald singing <laughs> something, and it was like try notating this. Mm-hmm. Okay. No, no, not possible. Like you can, you can, um, you know, you can try to condense it into something and then you have to write with swing rhythm on the top. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's just, yeah,
0: yeah. It's really interesting because, I mean, my wrong concept would be that, you know, oh, I bet modern notation has filled in all gaps. Now music Mm -hmm. conveys everything. Mm -hmm. Because I do think of with the medieval musical notation, that there are so many things it's not telling us. Mm -hmm. But it's really, you know, kind of great (laughs) and fascinating to hear that Mm -hmm. modern music
1: also has gaps that
0: other people will have
1: to figure out later. Yeah, exactly. There's all these unsaid, unnotated elements that we don't need to notate because we know them. And that was the same thing they were doing, that they felt like it wasn't necessary to tell you the starting pitch you just choose your starting pitch and it wasn't necessary even maybe to tell you individual pitches. You knew the melody. It was just to remind you like, it's this kind of a shape. It's this kind of a sound. It's you sing it in this sort of a way. And, uh, yeah. So, I mean, like hundreds of years from now, if we don't have all of the many things that we write down, if those don't all stay, then (laughs) somebody looking back would be like, they would have no idea how this was supposed to go. Yeah. Yeah. Um,
0: That does, you know, now that we're talking about, you know, maybe people centuries later looking back at the music and (laughs) trying to perform it, maybe we'll talk about what it actually feels like for both of you to perform medieval music. I think about it, you know, as it's really moving when you're hearing someone play or sing or, you know, just in general perform music that might not have been heard Mm. for a really long time, hundreds of years, you know, music before the age of recording, it's just it's not there it's on parchment Mm -hmm. (laughs) um so what does that feel like to be giving voice or you know playing your instruments and
2: i feel like it's a similar joy to being able to like read a novel or some other work of literature from another time and place Mm -hmm. and you feel like you're stepping into that world and yeah i mean we do have to do a lot of guesswork Mm -hmm. but um but even the little bits of information that we have from their art, it's 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 not the music that we're making today, it's not the literature we're making today. It's mm-hmm. it's very
1: different. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it is it is an art. It's not just like a, a history. Like we have to we have to take all the research and then we have to make decisions and then we have to get up in front of people and make <laughs> art and like that and that's where
2: that's where we are not musicologists exactly i right. get to write books and speculate right and say well it might have been a but it was probably b or maybe c
1: yeah but we have to then take that <laughs> yeah. piece and make a choice like right. how do you make the choice and then perform it in a way that's convincing yeah and like artistic and um and like speaks to an audience because like, that is the one thread through all of music history. Like, music always was about communicating to an audience. Always. At all times. So, and, like, the the way that you do that and the, like, priorities of how you do that are different, but it is about communication and, like, having some sort of connection to your audience. So, like, you have to kind of make decisions about how to do that as a modern person, but it's really exciting when you do, like, take something that maybe nobody's heard or... Or nobody's heard in a long time, or not in your country, or whatever, and get to do it in front of an audience in a way that they like connect with, and that is very exciting to like see the connection.
2: And I remember like driving across the country and just being stuck listening to the radio, and I started listening to like popular music, and, like, <laughs> oh, like no. classic rock stations, <laughs> and like and just trying to like sit there and like like what is it. I don't know, how are these people communicating, like, how are they creating music that resonates with people? Mm-hmm. Um, because I feel like coming from the classical tradition, they're, the way it's taught often, not that I was taught this way, I was taught with a lot of joy and love and all that. <laughs> I'm not besmirching any of that, but it is very much like you learn how to read the notes on the page. Yeah. And then you get a gold star. Yeah. and yeah. Um, And then when you're, like at conservatory and you're performing Bach it's like you if you play Bach for people because it's Bach like job done
0: yeah you know mm-hmm. and
2: mm-hmm. um and there are plenty of musicians and performers in the classical music world who obviously like know how to connect with their audiences mm-hmm. but i feel like that's something that it's like a special sauce that yeah,
1: yeah is not always there yeah it is a special sauce and it's like something that it's hard to like teach and talk about um but it is something that like throughout like through the classical period it was extremely important like that's what people talk about from that period about the music that interested them was the way that it like moved them and connected with their passions and um yeah so like figuring out how to do that with repertoires that are so foreign to us in a lot of ways and to our audience is hard and takes thinking outside the box and experimenting and yeah
0: yeah. i i totally see that um i think though you know people do respond particularly because during the concerts you usually have the translations Mm -hmm, of what you're mm -hmm. singing Mm -hmm. on a screen and like it's you know it's live and so it's very much like readily available as people are hearing you Mm -hmm. perform and i i I mean, there's like the one reaction I have to some of the things as a medievalist where I'm like, oh, that's so medieval. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. yeah. like, you know, something about like the Virgin Mary, you know, taking some vengeful actions yes, or something yes, and I'm yeah. like this is amazing yeah but then you get you know I get reactions with the people I usually bring to these where they just they laugh or they're like yeah. what or or they're just yeah. like so moved or like they have a reaction and they don't know where to place it mm-hmm. yeah. but it definitely does connect with people mm-hmm. it's just you know getting the word out and exposing them to this yeah. and yeah um Yeah, People do, I feel like, follow once they have, you know, access to lyrics or, you know, they're listening to it. They do understand the Mm -hmm. moods and what's the human experience. The question I I wanted to ask before we move into listening to actually some medieval music, we have the time and like talking through it so we can actually be like, how do you approach this? Mm -hmm. I wanted to ask. Because for me, it's like really stuck out any time I've listened uh, to your music is that you often will perform the parts that were originally for men. And so you really are doing this nice gender play by having, you know, a lot of these misogynistic tropes are now being sung (laughs) by a woman. And so I just, I have to ask about it because
2: it cracks me up and I love it. <laughs> well we kind of don't have a choice right because yeah. we are all women but uh, yeah we don't really have a choice and you know the whole courtly love thing kind of the reason one sings is because one is longing for a, a faraway lady or an unattainable lady mm-hmm. and that's what all this that's like what love poetry is right? Mm-hmm. and so women are in this kind of awkward position when they're given the opportunity to record poetry that they have written themselves, they're having to navigate their way through that. Christine Mm -hmm. de does awesome things with that. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think a lot of poetry from the male perspective was sung by women Mm -hmm. at the time. Mm -hmm. Okay, and I
1: think vice versa. I mean, I think there was a lot of, because there was also, there are a lot of um, songs written from female perspectives that appear to be written by men, and we don't know necessarily who was who always was singing, singing them. them sure. But yeah. sometimes it's likely there are a lot
2: written from the female perspective.
1: There, there's
2: are some, there's yes. a, a small segment. Yes,
1: yeah, but I, yeah, I think that like sort of singing from either side was possible. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, they weren't
2: like hung up on it the way we are.
1: No, I don't think so. Yeah. yeah. That Makes sense, they were hung I mean, up on a lot of other, yeah, games, yeah, but definitely. Yeah, but, that. but yeah, no, that,
0: I'm, I'm thinking that you know, this does make sense. The more that we examine pre modern gender, the less it mm-hmm. you know necessarily conforms to our modern ideas, mm-hmm. which yeah, which is you know, liberating in a lot yeah. of ways, but it is great, mm-hmm. I will say, when yeah. you're yeah. singing about maidens. Um, <laughs> 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 um so as we as we're coming to the end of this episode, I thought it might be fun to actually work through um a brief, you know, excerpt of a medieval song together. So we can play here okay. and now a clip from both of you performing a piece from your recent album Ildie Ld or He Said She Said.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Absolutely incredible. So what am I listening to? You're listening to an amazing piece of music by Guillaume de Machaut, a very famous 14th century French poet, as well as composer. Um, in fact, kind of one of the end generation of people who were expected to both write the words and the music. Um, there was a little bit of that continuing, but after that, they became sort of separate uh, worlds. Um, it's an amazing piece. It's a ballad, which uh, is both poetic and a musical genre. That word implies certain things about the form, both of the text and the music. What's really cool about this one, um, it's a ballad in three voices. Normally, the way that musically a ballad would be structured, there would be one top voice called a cantus there would be a lower voice called a tenor, and those two would be sort of composed together. And then there would be another voice called a contra tenor, a voice against the tenor, which is usually filling in uh, sonorities um, and providing sort of like interstitiary texture and notes and stuff. Um, and that is not what he does here. Instead, <laughs> instead he writes this piece for three equal range voices. And it's exactly the same music for each voice that is offset from each other. Oh, so if okay. you've ever okay. learned a canon or a round, like row, row, row your boat, it's that, but really complicated. <laughs> so one voice starts with it, and then another voice, and then the third voice. So we've got that going on musically. And then in terms of the text, he also does this thing, which is really crazy, where there's three different texts happening at the same time. And the first and the third voice are from the perspective of a male lover. The first voice is entreating the lady. uh, It's all courtly love. uh, Entreating the lady (laughs) to love him. And he's like, why don't you like me? And he's sad. And the second voice is the lady responding. And at first she's kind of like, I mean, I don't know. And by the end, she's like, "Fine, I guess I'll pay attention to you." And then the third voice, he's like, "Oh, thank you so much, lady." I, now I'm going to cry because I'm so happy. This unfolds over three whole
2: uh, stanzas.
1: Yeah, as well. Yeah. yeah. So each one, it's actually three ballads all sung simultaneously at the same. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you have all of that <laughs> happening at once, and so the like the him addressing the lady is happening just one bar ahead of her responding and then him responding to her is happening only one bar later. So it's all like simultaneous, essentially, uh, for three whole verses. And it's incredible.
2: Yeah. And actually, when we perform that piece live, instead of trying to display all of the texts, on the screen which would be like information overload right mm-hmm. we just print them in our program so mm-hmm. people can kind of calmly peruse them mm-hmm. <laughs> while it's happening yeah um, but it's yeah.
1: interesting to consider like as a listener who wouldn't have the text that's what
2: i was gonna ask and yeah
1: who know the language like how much of that would you get but it's not unusual
2: at all no in the 13th century you have um, a very popular genre called the polytextual motet Mm-hmm. Um, which always had at least two um, lines of uh, of text happening simultaneously. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes they were in different languages, mm-hmm. Latin and French, mm-hmm. Old French,
1: and um, sometimes one was sacred and one was secular. Yeah, if you want to draw yeah. that quote, quote unquote. Quote unquote yeah. yeah, this comes back to they didn't do concerts. Yeah, you know? yeah, it
2: wasn't for people with absolutely no context. Yeah, it was maybe just for the people making the music yeah you know um or people that yeah were are sort of in on the joke and yeah
1: yeah yeah i think even even for them uh it would be hard to hear all the interplay of the text but i think you would get a sense of there's a certain amount of repetition between texts and like on the same line like one voice will be saying like won't you love me and she's like yes i'll love you and then he's like thank you for loving me and you would hear like that sort of passing voice to voice and a lot of the same texts a lot of the same you know
2: like so it's not there aren't any big surprises yeah yeah you know right so you would be able to pick up the unusual thing that they're doing mm-hmm. okay because
1: yeah. that's yeah. a lot of formulaic tropes right in terms of the content of the dialogue. Yeah. So it probably would not
0: be I don't know if this would be the right word to use, but as difficult on the medieval listener no. to, to know exactly what's going on.
1: Yeah, no, they would know what's going on. I think they would have been amazed by the form that it yeah. takes, by by the musical way of doing this. Like it's really impressive piece. It's an amazing piece. Yeah. But yeah.
2: yeah. It's but. impressive when you all sing it. Or it's <laughs> well, so, sort of the surface level of like you're trying to make something that's interesting maybe beautiful to hear Mm -hmm. you know and Mm -hmm. then if you can go deeper with the text if you can go deeper with the context by like you know doing sticking with a particular time and place telling a story you know Mm -hmm. giving people multiple ways in
1: Mm -hmm. yeah yeah usually our goal
0: and i think that that's really something that your work alina and allison has really done is made medieval music more accessible, especially for those of us who are in the Cleveland area or have a chance to come to one of the concerts for Trobar. But for any listeners who would like to know more about Trobar and the work that you do, you can check out uh, the podcast Trobar Talks. And with that, I do just want to say thank you so much again for speaking with me about medieval music, about performing medieval music, and uh, using these instruments, and putting all these songs back together again. And, you know, I just want to say thank you so much. Well,
2: thank, thank you. you it's been you. so exciting getting to know <laughs> the art history people in Cleveland, too. Yes. Yeah, 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 it's been great. It's, yeah.
1: It fills <laughs> in gaps for us as well. Yeah, yeah every
0: time I hear a musicologist or a historical performance practice person say anything. I'm like, wait, but in images, it's yeah. the same thing. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. we need more collaborations. Yeah. <laughs> agreed.
1: Agreed. Yeah. Perfect. Thanks for having us. Yeah, yeah. thanks for having us. This has been an episode of the Multicultural Middle Ages, an anthology-style podcast series brought to you by the Graduate Student Committee of the Medieval Academy of America. Season two was produced by Will Beattie, Jonathan Correa Reyes, Reed O'Mara, and Logan Quigley. Music is by Anna O'Connell.